This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global changemakers dedicated to creating a healthier planet. One where our unique gifts are lived, expressed, and celebrated. I'm your host, Julian Guderlei. This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Welcome back. I'm here today with Ben Levine, co-founder and chief herbalist of Raza. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Julian. Thanks. I'm uh, really glad to be here. Yeah, Ben, you are on a crazy journey with herbs and adaptogens, and I'm super stoked to learn together today and hear a little bit about, you know, um, how you've built Rasa, how you've come to uh, connect with the, the world of uh, herbology, and yeah, in, in general, like how plants are really a big part of our path forward for health and homeostasis. Absolutely. Yeah, where where would you say you know that that path started for you? I, you know, I've 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 read that you like met your favorite plant and it basically talked to you. Do you want to want to start and pick up at that story? I, I'd love to hear. Uh, sure. Details. Yeah, it, it's always hard to say where where a passion or a relationship starts. Um, I think I it really started with farming for me and a passion for organic and natural foods. I grew up. My dad had an orchard and a big garden every year. And I was always helping him in the yard, weeding and planting. And after college, I was farming in Alaska at a small organic permaculture farm and exploring the woods around the farm and, and realizing there's all this medicinal and food plants out there, nettles, uh, chicken of the woods, mushrooms, fiddlehead ferns, and just got really excited by that. Like all this incredibly nutrient dense, free, abundant. And, and that was when my eyes started opening to herbalism. Uh, from there, I went to India for four months and explored farming techniques there. Uh, worked on a, a Masa, Masanobu Fukuoku-inspired farm, uh, and kind of the natural farming no-till in, in Auroville, uh, which was absolutely incredible. And and also they had a lot of herbs. They had amla, they had hibiscus. And so I, again, herbs are like kept coming in. Um, then I landed in Colorado and started working for uh, one of the biggest herbal tea companies in the world and also started to go to herb school uh, and, and really just fell in love with the people and the plants and, and the sense of magic that had been missing from my life, the sense of um, relationship. Like I'd always gone into the woods for, for therapy you know, anytime I needed to think, anytime I needed to get away, uh, but I didn't have this kind of direct relationship. Uh, and after, after my first year of herb school, I wanted some direct contact. It felt like I needed that. I was getting a lot of, uh, a lot of wisdom from my teachers, but I didn't have this kind of moment with plants. And um, I had one of those moments um, kind of by accident. It was a big intention of mine, but one weekend I just had the the gut feeling, get in your car, drive into the mountains. I didn't know exactly where I was going. And I ended up down this dirt road about an hour uh, outside of Boulder and found a trail, a little trail, unmarked, not on any maps and, and walked up it. And I knew that there's this particular plant up there that's really sacred to this region and to the Arapaho peoples that were in Boulder uh, before it was colonized. And and I found this stand of plants and I, I was in a bit of a trance at that moment and dug a little bit of the root and ate it and, and just started 
having we'll you there. Yeah. this experience yeah with this with this plant and this knowing of like this is this is my path like all doubt was washed away by that plant uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it's still one of my favorite plants one of my one of my biggest allies when i really need to to feel into my heart and and what my path is wow well ben there's a, a few a few uh, things you said that i want to look back to but you know having plants as allies as you just said here at the end that's a very powerful statement because really uh, when we transition and um, make that transformation as individuals and groups away from destroying nature as our enemy to having literally plants and their energy their spirits their their connection their nutrients as our allies i think that's literally when our our, our planet changes you know Mm -hmm. um, but it's cool to see that it goes back for you as like that first experience. You have to have the hands in the dirt somewhere at a permaculture place or a regenerative forest or any kind of community project. It's the same for me. It's the same for everyone who's been on this podcast, who's been inspired, like somewhere back their hands were in the soil and they understood this is a form of abundance and richness that I want to have in my life somehow, you know, it's not about becoming a farmer. It's about connecting with the earth in that way and our understanding that our gut in the waters and the soil of the earth is connected yep. really cool absolutely so you you just went um you know in that mission you know you you, you founded raza and you you built a company that is you know specializing on alternatives through or uh, you know herbal replacements for coffee and uh, um, many other herbs as well um and I, I want to hear, you know, so the pragmatic integration of what where we just started in your journey. So you said you were just in India for a few weeks uh, on a business trip, um, meeting suppliers. How is it actually on the ground now when when you show up somewhere? Like how big are these 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 plantations, and how much do you think people are honoring the principles that you want to see out there? Yeah, that's a great question, and and one of the reasons I visited because you you hear a lot from suppliers and their websites and their marketing materials. Uh, and you see a lot of the work they're doing, but until your boots are on the ground, you really don't know. And, and there are plenty of times, you know, I was in China three years ago and there's, there's, you just don't know what to expect. Uh, and so this trip to India was, was so inspiring because usually you, you find a lot less than you're hoping for. And I actually found a lot more. There were a lot of things they, they didn't tell me about, and they aren't doing a good job of communicating about, um, how they're supporting organic farmers and, um, as far as the size goes, they work with about 2,000 small organic farmers, averaging around two to four acres each. Uh, so not big plots of land and certainly still uh, very much family-based. And this supplier is doing everything they can to support end-to-end -end organic farmers. Uh, so they provide them with vermicompost. They have these massive worm bins like concrete worm bins that are producing tons and tons of worm castings uh, a week. And they're, they're helping them with some traditional growing methods like compost tea is something I know you've heard of, Julian. Uh, it's, it's something I've tried to make at home before. It's like a fermented, rich, nutrient-rich uh, fertilizer for, for plants. But there's a traditional Indian version of this, a couple actually. Uh, it's called... Oh, cool. Um, nectar of life, uh, the, the Indian word. Let me see if I can remember that. Uh, Jiva, Jiva Marita. Um, and there's one that's made with buttermilk and another one that's made with the dung and the urine of the indigenous cow. And you're basically adding the dung and the urine, um, some jaggery, some, some sugar, 
uh, a handful of soil and some lentils and letting it ferment and then spraying that on your crops. And it's so incredible. Uh, and it's, and it's traditional. Like this is something that's been going on for a long time. It's just something that's been lost. So they're the holy, ca- the holy cow of India. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. And, I mean, there's so many different ways to compost and to create biomaterial, right. Um, mm-hmm. that then nourishes our, our ground and, and, and lets things grow again. That's amazing. So that's one of, of two organic, like composting ways that they, they have re remembered or. Yep. Yep. The other what's, ones. What's with- the other one? with yeah. buttermilk uh-huh. again is is connected to the cow and and the the thought is is that that indigenous cow has so many more it, it obviously deeply connected to that land in a way that jersey cows aren't going to be uh, but they have so many more microbes and their dung interacts with the soil in a much more beneficial way bringing up worms and uh, so it was really amazing to hear about that and the and that those are just a couple examples there's doing so many things for rainwater catchment, for instance, uh, because a lot of Southern India, I was in Karnataka for most of it. A lot of Southern India is on the verge of desertification and the rains, massive monsoons come and they just sweep away the topsoil because they're not getting, they're not percolating into the soil. There's nothing to stop the water uh, because it's often a lot of monoculture. Um, And so they're digging these rainwater catchment pits and buns um, just trying to route water and save water uh, and extend the life of the aquifers which are slowly drying up over there Um, and so it it was really powerful to see these incredible farmers and also understand like what does it take to move farmers in the right direction Um, you have still a lot of conventional farmers a lot of pesticides a lot of nitrogen fertilizer Uh, And what does it take? And from what I saw there, it seems like you need a couple incredible farmers in a region, you know, maybe one in a village that is doing regenerative or agroforestry or biodynamic, uh, something that's going to increase their soil health, start to increase yield, and also eventually increase profit. And then once they're really working in a efficient way, other farmers in the area will start coming in and say, Hey, like, how did you do this? Can you show me how to do this part? Uh, like, I, I want to get in on this because clearly your soil health is incredible and you're making more money because totally. of that. I mean, that. That example is, you know, literally so embodied. Like if you walk onto an agroforestry farm that is a few years running yep. and you compare it to any traditional farm that you could walk onto into as well, like, you know, the diversity of things that are growing and the richness of the garden that that you kind of experience is, is such a, such a mind-blowing experience like mm. you know this just happened to me uh, over here in brazil in the last months at uh, terra Buma. we're we're collaborating with and it um I'll hopefully have an interview with uh, ray one of the founders very soon on the podcast here um you know it's it's just wild because around this place alto paraiso um there is Bra- brasilia the capital you know three hours south from here you drive basically only through monocultures and soybeans and you mm. see like the barren land basically you know and so brazil is so powerful the land here is so vital that you you have the birds and the toucans and and, and passing by but you can see they're looking for habitat you know and mm. then you arrive in the cerrado mountains that are protected and the projects here are mind-blowing it's just like everything grows in synarchy or synergy with each other and um basically 
you know, the, the short explanation is you, you grow water, planta agua, <laughs> you know? So you, you grow a banana after a year, it has fruit, then you chuck it and put the banana leaves as biomaterial down for everything else that comes after it. Same with papaya that grows fruit in the second year, then you chuck it and, mm. you know, um, put it as biomaterial back onto the ground. And so even throughout the dry season, people here don't have to irrigate anymore, you know, compare that to regular farming that you drive through when you come up from Brasilia. Oh, I mean, that's a whole other level, you know, because at some point, and Ben, I'm sure you, you, we share that, that passion at some point, we have to simply stop putting agrotoxic or roundup or any forms of chemicals into the ground um, yeah. be because it's not going to create the food grade we want, we want in the world, you know? Yeah. And, and, and in some ways, in, the way. in some ways, India is ahead of us in that realization because they had mm -hmm. the green revolution, which introduced a lot of pesticides and, and modern farming techniques. And it was helpful in a lot of ways, but it also is clearly uh, like BT cotton, for instance, which is, a genetically modified cotton that can take a lot more pesticides than usual. Um, and there is just this string of farmer suicides because their land stopped producing and they needed more and more chemicals and they were in debt to the chemical companies. Um, and so there's, there's like a, a deep knowing in a way yeah. in India that I don't know that we're, we're here in the U S uh, we quite get it yet. Maybe I think that cycle is becoming very, you know, paradoxically obvious that the more we've invested in the pharmaceutical um, solutions for anything, the, you know, the more reparations we have to pay at some point later. And yeah. so I think that consciousness is definitely rising. Um, and it's maybe not invested in the main, in the mainstream media, <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's another story, you know? So staying at the topic of soil with you, I'm also really curious about Raza because I said earlier, uh, you know, coffee replacement, but you do so much more. You have also mushroom um, blends with, with all kinds of different um, spores like turkey tail, reishi, cordyceps, lion's mane. Where do you grow the mushrooms specifically? Those are grown in China. And it's, uh, it's a supplier that's been working there for 30 years, has the best quality mushrooms on the market, in, in our opinion, and many others. Um, and it's, it's all organic. It's grown on the right substrates. So we, you know, we use logs for reishi, um, or, you know, log sawdust for other mushrooms and it's all, all fruiting body. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really nice to support these types of mushrooms because the mushroom industry is massive at this point and quite saturated. We, we consider ourselves more in the adaptogenic herb market. Um, but yeah. we just, we did just launch a mushroom blend. That's just mushroom powder extracts. Um, and the amount of products I see out there that either don't say the serving or, you know, don't say the strength or the potency, um, don't use fruiting body. And so it's, it's nice to be, to be in that game as well and able to provide. Some well, really it's just such an exciting products. topic as part of health. You know, when we talk on the kind of on the spectrum of where we just came from with at some point we want to stop putting agrotoxins into the soil. I mean, one of the pathways into the future is definitely getting to know the mycelium and the fungi world better, as well as mm. recognizing plants as our allies, as you've already said, right? Yeah. And I think with mushrooms, there's a growing consciousness across the world as well, specifically in the US, where it's, it's clear that they have healing properties, medicinal healing properties, and also just like traditional healing properties. And, um, almost like revitalize our immune system i would say yes yep yep the ability for mushrooms to start a chemical dialogue that is 
you know, we've had evolutionarily and now we're suddenly, you know, we're not talking to anyone. Uh, we really need to start talking to mushrooms again and, and having them in our systems, teaching them, teaching us how to have a robust immune response and a balanced immune response. I agree. It's, um, it's, it's a, a beautiful world of, um, alternative, you know, foods out there. Uh, I'm in Brazil currently on like mostly, mostly a diet of, uh, you know, roots and, uh, yummy and potatoes, which is, um, very interesting to kind of take oils and salts out of your food for a while and clean the gut and the liver. Um, but food is medicine. And so I, I love, I love that, that mission that, that you're on Ben and that mission that Raza is on, um, I want to ask a few more personal questions to you, Ben, uh, you know, so what, what do you feel it took for you to, to really connect to your purpose and lift off and just go run with it? Like when, when was that time in your life? Was there like a, maybe a moment where you're like, fuck, it's gotta be me and I'm going to do this. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I definitely struggled for a while in my twenties. Uh, I had a lot of existential despair. Like, what is, what's my role? What, what's my meaning? What am I doing? And, and there were so many things that inspired me, organic farming being one of them, but nothing grabbed me until plants grabbed me. Uh, and I think that it was a, it was a gradual process. You know, like I, I loved organic farming. I didn't want to be a organic farmer uh, because there's, and I, I respect organic farmers so much, but for me, there was, there was something else I needed on a, almost a more spiritual level or on a relational level. And when you're, when you're farming, you're, you're the nurturer, you're the caregiver, you're tending. And, and when you wildcraft plants in the mountains, it's almost an opposite relationship. Like you are showing up in their home and you're showing up with massive amounts of respect and, and honoring these plants and, and they need your caretaking on a more macro level. Um, but you need their caretaking on a more individual personal level. And I, and I think that was the switch for me when I, I had these experiences with the plants outside, uh, the mountains in Colorado where different, different parts of me were unlocked. It's like every plant has a key to a different part of my, my being and feeling some of those pieces come together like wow like these these plants are powerful like i am not a complete human without access to plants like they they hold pieces of me and and i am I'm, i just feel indebted to them and i think that was when i i felt like okay this is this is my this is my path um, because i feel like they helped me out of depression and out of certain ways of thinking certain ruts my mind would get in and and really open my heart Powerfully said man i mean hands are a big key to our our life <laughs> it's funny that you know there there used to be or maybe there's in parts like political agendas against war and plant you know it's 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 one of the most paradoxical things we could be doing and it's 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 really powerful to uh on a yeah growing audience of people you know to have have plans as healing pathways accepted and then and, and remembered 
it's a powerful time we live in in that regard. Is this what makes you optimistic? Maybe I feel like you're you come you come into this show with with such a powerful optimism, and you, you know Raza is a shining example, and your your journey seems very clear at this point. Um, but nonetheless, for a lot of people, and and I know people go through this in phases, like life doesn't only seem optimistic at times. It's like you know it, it can be quite difficult for at times. I, mm. Would you say you're an optimist? And if so, like how how do you choose this optimism? Oh, uh, yeah, I, well, I think one thing that just popped into my mind as you were talking about this was I, I don't feel alone because, because of plants and, and in that way I feel in, in some, some relationship with the natural world. And that makes me feel optimistic, uh, because as, as more and more people start to, uh, get into herbalism in a heart-centered way, get into business in a more conscious way, uh, spread knowledge about different farming methods. Uh, like, yeah, I think in a lot of ways we're moving way too slowly and we're up against some serious obstacles uh, of our modern culture and how a lot of the world works right now. Um, but in, in general, there's so much beauty that I don't know. I can't help but be an optimist. And if it, you know, if it all goes downhill soon, like at least we're, uh, I think maybe Gary Snyder said this, uh, it's a matter of style. Like we need to, we need to be honoring, honoring this beauty. Honoring this beauty and, you know, uh, common phrasings that, that come to mind are like fighting the good fight or like showing up mm -hmm. for what's there, or, you know, and I, yeah. I, I don't know, as long as we're still fighting, maybe that's a paradox in itself, but being a, a, a warrior for that kind of world in a certain way, I think is very important because there are still massively destructive forces on the planet that we, we have to recognize and reconcile um, the way colonialism and capitalism have perpetuated a certain worldview, you know? So yeah. I think when we, we connect with the plants, you speak with such a clear uh, open heart today in this episode, Ben, like, you know, our hearts have to stay open and that's a, a prime way to connect through nature first um very interesting i find I think, this a lot more in the in the southern hemisphere of the planet to be honest uh, it's uh, much easier for me to connect with somehow yeah yep yeah, uh, i like that and i i also think i'm optimistic because it's not really about us like life will go on humans might not make it but but life will go on and we might lose some of our favorite plants um, because of climate change like they're they're losing their ecological niches uh, but it feels like life itself is very strong and, um, but then and, again, and you've is... been to Auroville, right? And you've seen starting to jump in, but you've seen that when humans come together in certain ways, everything becomes possible. And there's many mm. projects like that out there. Auroville is just a very um, beautiful example, and, and that you spend time in. Yeah. Uh, that it's it's not easy to regenerate soil, but it's totally possible within very few years. And the more of these oases or paradises we have on the planet the more this this ripple of nature intelligence will flood back into the, the ways humans uh, play and show up and, and care and steward, right? Yes, um, yes. You want to take us back to that trip in India? Because it wasn't the only time you went to India this this last time. Yeah, it, it's, it was really beautiful. So I was in India eight years ago for four months. And then I was in India again for just a couple of weeks last month in March. and And the parallels were really striking you know last time i was in india i was learning a lot about regenerative and learning about 
um, natural farming, no-till, no input um, at, at Oroville and different organic farm designs, permaculture design. And in my mind, it was almost like a, a demo farm. Like it was not, it was beautiful and it was deep. And he was, he was almost proving a concept, um, but I, I didn't see it at scale at all. Um, and this time going back to India and starting to see it at scale, like starting to see the work that uh, I was on, on Krishna's farm, solitude farm in Aravel. I'm starting, you know, I saw another farm that was the exact same concept, uh, inspired by Fukuoku, no-till regenerative agroforestry, um, and also in commerce. And that was, that was just so healing to see, like, this is, this is slowly happening. Like this, these ideas are spreading and, um, and it's, it's slow work and it's scary. You know, like this time I was there, I heard from several people, the impacts of climate change. In Karnataka, the the rains lasted two months longer than they normally do, which caused a lot of yeah, a lot of problems. Yeah, a lot of fungus and mm. on the cacao and and I was also in Rajasthan and heard the same thing. Like it was 106 degrees while I was there, and they said, "Yeah, the the heat came early this year, which is super mm. abnormal." Uh, and and I, you know, these farmers are super close to the land, so they're very aware of any changes in the climate. Um, and and seeing that, while almost also simultaneously being inspired by the scaling of these amazing regenerative agriculture techniques, uh, was it was <laughs> those those things in parallel. Like, okay, things are getting worse, things are getting better, um, and and I'll be pushing on the side of the better. That's brilliant. I mean, it's these experiences that when we go out in the world, they make us rich in, in perspective. They humble us because, you know, <laughs> there's lots of learning. And then, yeah. like in your case, it inspires. And I think this is really number one reason why I always chose to travel is the inspiration that comes and that uh, you take with yourself and that you then give back to life. is just, just so massive. Mm. So I want to jump in your timeline a little bit, Ben, and thanks for sharing and, you know, yeah. letting us get to know you today. Um, if you were to go back to age 15, would yeah. there be three lessons you could give your teenage self to um, go out into the world with? Ooh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah, I was a very different person at 15. I was in a small town in Arizona, like a, a farming, ranching community. and I think the, one of the biggest things that happened to me was I started to get out of my head a bit. And if I, I could have told my 15 year old self, like focus on that, like that's important and, and relax, stop, stop thinking so much. And, and then I think leaning into what I felt when I was on big hikes, like we used to go hiking with my dad a lot and my brother. And there was something that you know, like the, the way the light hits through the pine trees and that moment that seems suspended in time. Uh, like I had those moments as a kid, I remember them and leaning into those and, you know, asking like, what is that? Why, why do I feel this way in the woods? Uh, would have maybe helped me get there a little sooner. That's an interesting one that you just bring up on a, on a personal note. It, it takes me into the forests around the house I grew up in. And, you know, every time when I go do go back home to, to those parts of Germany, 
I actually reconnect with the forest. It's like a must, <laughs> even though back yeah. as a child, I might not have had the same appreciation for the forest as I have today, but I still sense that there's like a connection, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a yeah, beautiful it's, synchronicity. <laughs> it's like, it's one of the few liminal spaces available to us as children. Yeah. And you know, this is another aspect of, of uh, regenerative farming or agroforestry or, you know, to in parts community living, you know, um, that's what happens sometimes on these larger projects that, you know, uh, people, people gather and start to live as well. But I think it's creating liminal spaces, as you just said, spaces where um, we as humans are connected with the environment, maybe in a different way than in the mainly digital uh, city environment, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's quite different. I mean, everyone who's on that journey and hops between those worlds, it's it's wild. Like even going back to uh, Sao Paulo or New York or Los Angeles, like Vancouver, you know, these places are, people are not necessarily connected when they're in the cities. I think there's quite a bit of duality or paradox still occurring um, in, in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Is I, that I lived. Yeah, is that part of why you're in, in sorry, in Colorado, would you, would, would you say? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I absolutely have fallen so deeply in love with Colorado and it's the landscape I became an herbalist in. So, so many plants here are dear to me and, and you know, I, I know if I moved somewhere else, I'd find other plants, but part of me was like, I can't ever leave these plants. Uh, and the, the access to nature is, is amazing. I used to live in the mountains outside of Boulder for several years. And what you're saying, I, I really noticed like my nervous system was entrained to nature when I lived in the woods. And then I would go to town as kind of a field trip uh, versus now I live in Denver, which is a city. And I feel my nervous system tuning to the city. And then I have to go into the woods as a way to kind of retune. And I much prefer the, the former as my baseline. But, you know, Denver's Denver for a city is, is not bad. 30 minutes away and you have incredible trails, even 20 minutes. That's awesome. Hey, Ben, I have, I have three more questions for you. And I want to I want to kind of stretch the conversation a, a little bit more because, you know, part of what we experience in those liminal spaces or in these natural spaces, I, I believe, is just a, a deep connection. Right. And so in the human space, what I've learned to, to see is trust is one of the most important factors to facilitate for more of that space and so i have been asking this question to over 300 people at this point is, is what is trust you know like how how, how do you experience trust maybe is, is the better question um and what does it take for you to trust if you if you you know want to take those questions oh yeah that's a that's a good one trust i i think for for me trust has been the gradual letting go of my my ego and my mental plans to to the plants and just trusting the plants to to lead me and uh, there have been several moments on my journey in my career where i was just like okay like it's time for me to trust the plants and and make a decision that will more involve them or more um, help them or engage them and, and just letting go of my preconceptions about what my path is going to look like and the things I want to do and just saying like, okay, when, when, I, when I have an experience with a plant that tells me something otherwise, uh, I, I'm learning to just trust that. Uh, 
another another example is going back to the original story with osha the sacred plant here in colorado plants plants are good at teaching trust because there's this inner voice this intuition but it's often hard to tell like what's intuition and what's my mind and and trying to hone that uh, and after that first harvesting of that plant in the mountains i went back maybe a year later to a different spot same plant and and this time heard a very clear no like i'm i'm not supposed to harvest today it was, a, it was a very clear no and i listened to that and that like started helping build my trust in my intuition and um the trust between my body and my mind and yeah i think it's a it's a long process that i'm still still getting good at but um, i love how you keep coming yeah. back to plants and plants as a teacher <laughs> it's very the, the powerful red red thread of this conversation plants as and, allies and plants as teachers it's yeah it's if real. i could say if i could say one more thing about trust that that ties into the company i'm part of right now i i used to drink a lot of coffee and you know you're in brazil like coffee's amazing coffee's everywhere it's i think 90 yeah 90 of americans drink coffee uh, but what happens with me is that it's it's very easy for me to override my my gut and my intuition with with coffee because it's so strong and kind of barrel over my intuition uh, with this with this energy that's not necessarily my inspiration but it's this external derived energy um, and so one of the one of our missions at, at Rasa is to help people be in relationship with their energy in a in a similar way where you're kind of like being in relationship with your body, you're learning to trust your body, you're saying like, huh, like I don't have good energy right now. Like, why is that? Like also maybe it's just okay to not have good energy and to relax a bit. And and adaptogens help us build more of that relationship uh, and and plug into the coffee ritual in a way that makes it easy. Uh, but I think that's, that's another big part of my journey is stepping away from the, the stronger stimulants. Mm. Yeah. That, thank you for that reminder for many of us. And, and I, I love that adaptogens as the term goes, they are adaptive and, and need us in a different way. Yeah. Cool. I have the other question I, I want to ask you for sure today is um, about education and, and learning as a as a principle so you know we, i like to look at it through the lens of lifelong learning but then also we have something that we call the education system so maybe i'll start there um if you were to change the education system let's just um see you know what, what would you what would you change like if you were with a team of experts you had all the possibilities uh, the way we we teach young people and and even as adults how we interact like how how would you revolutionize that? I'm sure mm. you have an opinion. Right. Yeah. And, and I apologize. I think I might just go right back to plants. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I would, the idea that children are sitting in chairs in a box, in a fluorescent lit box for hours every day, it just seems so unnatural. Like the Euclidean lines, mm. the, the forced stillness, like life is not still. And, and that kind of control, I think, is is damaging to a lot of the inherent ability to engage well and the said, desire yeah. to engage in education and, and having more outdoor time, more, you know, maybe it's structured like you're like, there's a lot of beautiful elementary middle school community gardens. Now, uh, maybe it's in the woods, uh, but 
more more hands based. It's definitely a movement that's happening. Yeah, nature, nature yeah. schools are happening. Um, yeah, nature as the primary principle is, is is something I have come across many times. That's that's really cool. I totally agree with you about that stillness that's forced upon us. Yeah, you know what? What else would you would would you have wished for in in your educationary or educational journey? Um, because I, I know a lot of us perceive it also backwards like that, right? It's like, wow, the possibilities I have are, are how I then create my life with. Do you, have, do you have one of those moments when you look back where you're like, wow, boy, I wish I was more supported or I had a different set of, of inputs? Mm. Yeah, I was, I was really lucky. Both my parents were public school teachers. And I was really lucky to have a lot of support with education in the traditional sense. Um, and I, I think one of the one of the things I wish I had done a little bit better is not be quite so focused on excelling in the system. Uh, you know, like grades are incredible, but the learning matters, not the score. And kind of, I think our, a lot of our school systems teach to the tests and teach to the, um, the outcome as opposed to the process. And if I had, if I had gone a little more into, you know, what I wanted to learn about and leaning into my interests and not worrying so much about things I wasn't interested in. Uh, I think that would have been, that would have been wonderful. Yeah. And helped me trust myself. Yeah, that, exactly. Cause that's what we definitely develop as children, right? Is, is that sense for the world and trusting the world. Um, mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, it's powerful stuff, but it's also what all of us listening and, and all of us, you know, sh sharing and building companies out there. We are actually on these journeys, right? And so um, recognizing the human journey over just the scoreboard, uh, well, that would change a lot. Yeah. Um, ben, in that context, let's go out on the timeline for the last question. Uh, seven generations as all our relations. If you were to, you know, share your dream for the planet or your dream for the earth, as a steward for the next seven generations going forward, like what would that look like? Mm. Well, I, you've had several guests on your show that are indigenous wisdom keepers. And I think that's, that's the first thing that pops up. Like we, we need to learn from these indigenous wisdom keepers. We need to hold them precious and, and really understand the difference in our worldviews. Uh, because as a as someone who grew up in the U.S., as a, I'm, I'm I'm white, and there there's so much sickness in my worldview that is that directly encounters the indigenous worldview and is and is healed in a lot of ways by different ways of seeing things. Uh, and I think that feels like the first step to me. And and then back to soils and and cultures, uh, a lot of us in the West are somewhat disconnected from our ancestors. And it's something I've been working on a lot. I'm, I'm half Jewish, I'm half Scots Irish and digging back to find the more indigenous roots of like what, what plants were my ancestors connected to and reestablishing that chain and hoping that chain makes it seven generations in the future. answer connecting with our family lines can be very healing yeah. well ben thank you so much for all of uh you know all of the things you shared today um 
gonna make sure to link out Rasa and different ways to connect with the company um, and and even yourself. Um, maybe maybe if you had one more thing you want to share, any shout out you want to make, um, go ahead. Um, yeah, I think. Well, I just again like I'm I'm so passionate about herbalism, and you know we were talking about formal education and in herbalism, I, I have formal education. You know that's not necessarily needed in herbalism because it's so connected to the earth. Uh, but one thing that I've just benefited from so much that everyone listening now can also benefit from is finding a sit spot and making a commitment. You know, maybe you'll visit this sit spot once a week, once a month, once every day. Um, I had a, a sit spot next to my old work. It was a yellow dock plant. It's a weed that grows everywhere in the U.S. and also uh, a really amazing medicine, medicinal plant. And I sat by this yellow dock probably three times a week for six, eight months. And, and it was profound what I learned from that yellow dock. And, and so you don't necessarily need the, the book learning, the classes. Um, the, the first step is just finding a spot in nature and, and courting it, making a relationship with it and seeing what happens. That was a good one. A sit spot, find your power spot, go out there and uh, let nature uh, connect to you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Ben, for being here. Uh, Thanks, fun this episode. Thank you. Thanks.